turn to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, just two verses, although I'd like to read two words of the third verse before we finish. It's page 1008 in the Bibles that are in your pews in front of you. Familiar text. The writer says, therefore, by the way, that's all one sentence coming up. My English professors would say it's a run-on, but it's in the Bible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, consider Him. And so we will. But let's pray first. Father, this text is one that some of us have read a lot. We think of what precedes it in chapter 11, this roll call of faith. We recognize as we just read these two verses, the motivation for your Holy Spirit writing through this author that we don't know. That He would write about our need to endure, our need to stay faithful, and yet, Lord, we know that our endurance and our faithfulness is something that we can't do unless You, by the Spirit of God, enable us, live through us, run through us. And so, Lord, we ask that You would open this text to our minds and our hearts as we reflect on that Isaiah text that we read earlier, the hymns that we've sung and the anthems that we've listened to, that it would all come together so that when we come to your table, we might have a fresh experience of your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. It's arguably the toughest marathon in the world. It's 545 miles long. Sydney, Australia to Melbourne. I mean, that's the equivalent of running from Pittsburgh to Milwaukee. And yet people do it. In 1983... 150 world-class runners came together at Sydney to run that race, 545 miles. And among them was a toothless 61-year-old farmer named Cliff Young. And when he showed up, he gave off every indication to everyone who saw him that he was going to simply observe the race. I mean, he was dressed in overalls those big rubber boots, work boots. And yet he came to the registration table and said, I want to run. 
Now, you need to know that Cliff Young had lived almost all of his life on a farm. For the last 40 years, he farmed this one farm with his father, and it was, it is 2,000 acres. They have about 2,000 sheep, no horses, no four-wheel drives. So when you want to round up the sheep, you've got to do it on foot. And Cliff Young would often take somewhere between two and three days to run those 2,000 acres gathering the sheep together. Now, nobody knew that. So he came to the registration table and said, I want to register, I want to pay my fee, and I need a number. And they gave him a number, smirking, number 64. He gathered together with the elite runners and People began to snicker because they saw the number on the back of his overalls. They said, you've got to be kidding, this guy's crazy. But when the gun went off, that's when the snickers turned to laughs. Because he didn't run like the other runners. He had this leisurely shuffle. And those watching at the starting line and also on television all over the nation began to say in unison, I guess under their breath, somebody ought to pull that guy aside, he's going to kill himself. But five days, 15 hours and four minutes later, Cliff Young crossed the finish line nearly 10 hours ahead of any other runner. All over Australia, people were stunned. He had broken the previous record by a little over nine hours. And so people began to ask, how was it possible? Did he cheat? He couldn't have cheated because they televised the whole thing. And so they asked, how? And everybody knows in an ultra-marathon, runners run for about 18 hours, and then they sleep for six Depending on the distance, it's somewhere between five and six days of that routine, but nobody told Cliff. He just shuffled along. Day and night, night and day, he didn't stop, and he became a national hero. In fact, fact, professional runners study his shuffle. And they try to emulate it. Today it's called the Young Shuffle. And many ultra-marathoners use that technique. Now when you talk about the Christian faith, and the fact that finishing is far more important than beginning, you quickly recognize that endurance is what is needed. And of all of the texts of Scripture, there is one text that stands head and shoulders over any other text when it talks about endurance, and that's the one we just read. Louis Evans, who's gone to be with the Lord, but when he wrote this, he was the senior minister of National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He said this, The 12th chapter of Hebrews is one of the most classic passages of Scripture that is held up by people of faith who understand the need for discipline. And nearly every Christian who's walked with Christ more than a few weeks understands the need for discipline. The problem is, most of us don't like it. 
Endurance is a difficult thing to come by. And yet the writer of Hebrews is looking out into the future and he recognizes that persecution is coming upon the readers. And so he says to them, I need to talk to them and encourage them to endure, but how should I do it? And instantly or suddenly or fairly quickly, he comes up with an idea. It's just like a race. It's a race that requires faith. It requires a faith like Abel's. Remember, Abel offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to the Lord because his eyes were on the Lord, not on himself. It's a race that requires faith like Noah's, that was willing to continue to do the work, even in the midst of all of these complainers and catcallers and those who would seek to impede his progress. It's a faith that requires sacrifice like that of Abraham, who's willing to leave everything he has, taking his nuclear family with him, and is willing to obey God's call wherever it takes him. And then this writer mentions ten other people in the preceding chapter whose faith gives testimony to endurance. And he, by doing that, is indicating to these readers that they need to have such faith. And yet it isn't all of those examples, it's not all of those luminaries that he discusses that captures my attention tonight, or really any night. In fact, it isn't any of those that he details, those 14, that he says, consider... There's only one that he tells us to consider, and that is Jesus. Listen to what he says again. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says, consider him. And so tonight I'd like us to consider him. past week I listened to David Brancaccio. Some of you may know him or have heard him, National Public Radio. He's the, one of the principals behind Marketplace. I mean, it's very engaging. And so David Brancaccio is, is talking about a term in economic analysis that in the last 20 years has taken on steam. And it's called hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic discounting. He said it's something that nearly every American does these days. In fact, we do it on a regular basis. We discount the future for the sake of the present. Give you an example. Let's say somebody says to you tonight, I'll give you $100, or next year on April 2nd at 8 o'clock, I'll give you $120. What, you, what would you prefer? 
Do you know that 95% of all Americans would say, give me the 100 now? And yet if they wait one more year, they'll get a 20% gain. Where can they make 20% on their money? And yet 95% or more Americans will say, give me the 100 today. I'm not going to wait till for a year. Now why would they do that? Why would we do that? And the answer is simple. We discount the value of the future gain by the length of time it takes to get it. In other words, we opt. We may opt for one more dollar or two more dollars in a week. But 20 more bucks in a year, forget it. The longer we have to wait, the less value it has to us. Why is that? Economists have studied it. And it's plain why it's because the future is not in focus for us. It's too vague. We can't see it. We suffer from financial nearsightedness. So what's Brancaccio do with that information? He goes to Penn, University of Pennsylvania. And he meets a neuroscientist who's also a psychiatrist. And he says to him, I'm studying this hyperbolic discounting. You are an expert on it. You've written on it. So listen, Dr. Cable. I want to know, is there a pill I can take? Is there some kind of therapy that I can engage in so that I will always pick the $120 in a year rather than $100 a day? Joseph Cable laughs at him. And he said, no, there's no pill. There's no therapy. So Brancaccio says, what can I do? And listen to what the professor said. He said, you can try to interview your future self. You can interview your future self. You can ask yourself, in five years, where will I be? In five years, what would I want? In 10 years, what will have more value to me than what has value today? Well, Brancaccio thought that was a little esoteric, so he did the next best thing. He found a 94-year-old named Hal. He said, Hal, I have a 1965 kitchen. Do you think I should borrow money to redo it? Hal said, no way. You should do a little bit on your kitchen as you can afford it. Brancaccio said, hey, how about this? Do you think I should save for my, college, my kid's college education? Or do you think I should buy the Apple Watch? Cable says, you know what I'll say. Besides, I was at Marshall's yesterday and you can get one for 25 bucks. Now think of Jesus. What's the writer of Hebrews say? For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Meaning what? Meaning Jesus had no nearsightedness. For the joy that was set before Him, a future joy, 
he is willing to face two major obstacles. The cross and the shame. Think of the cross. He endured the cross. What's that mean? Well, it means what the New Testament tells us. Jesus volunteered for the cross. No one made Him go to the cross. He chose to go. Remember, less than a week earlier, He rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey proclaiming that He is the King that they've been waiting for. It's a transformational moment. For three years, He's sought to avoid their acclamation. For three years, He's refused their coronation. For three years, He has resisted being the miracle worker. And yet here, on that day, He determines to go from teacher to king. From rabbi to redeemer. He could avoid the crowd. He could not succumb to that temptation. Or he could. But he chooses, he chooses to go to the cross. Remember what he said in the upper room? Right after they had finished eating, he lifted a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you. And then minutes later, the Gospel writers tell us that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he kneels down to pray. Now, there's only six times in the entire Bible when anyone is said to kneel and pray. Only six times. The normal standing position of a Hebrew Jew, that was the prayer position. But when the need is great and the heart is broken, and the desire for God to do something extraordinary, when that occurs, people kneel down to pray. Solomon did it when he dedicated the temple. Paul did it when he left Ephesus. There are numerous six times. And yet the Bible tells us that as Jesus kneels down to pray, something extraordinary happens. He's all alone. And yet he begins to agonize to such an extent, the Bible tells us he begins to sweat drops of blood. And over the years, I've read several medical journals and those accounts that say when someone is in extraordinary agony, when they're in severe pressure, sometimes certain capillaries rupture and it causes just a little bit of blood to seep out one's pores. That's not what the Bible says. It says he sweat drops of blood. I love what Spurgeon says. Charles Spurgeon, nearly 200 years ago, he said this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is so oblivious to himself that instead of His agony driving His blood inward to nourish Him, it's driven outward to fall onto the ground, the same ground out of which He formed every person He will redeem. How did Jesus endure the cross? 
How does he endure the suffering? The writer of Hebrews tells us he looks beyond himself. He doesn't focus his attention on him or his pain or his suffering. He focuses his attention on the joy that's set before him. He can look into the future. He sees a future joy and there's no hyperbolic discounting. There's no discounting at all. What about the shame? How does he endure that shame? Do you know that the Bible uses a word here, this writer that uses a word never associated with Jesus in his entire ministry? What's he say? He despised the shame. That word literally means to think against. Never in all of the Gospels is Jesus said, does it despise anyone or anything? In none of the epistles is it said that Jesus despised. This is the only time it's used. And what does he despise? He despises the shame. I thought about that this week. You know, what would a sinless person despise any more than shame? What would be more foreign to an innocent man than shame? John Calvin said this, though Christ was free to exempt Himself from all trouble, to lead a happy life, to abound in all things, yet He underwent a death that was bitter and degrading in every way. He chose to do that. And the writer of Hebrews zeroes in on one thing, and that's the shame. He despised it. Think of the choice of that word. There in the garden, hours later in the city, he despises the shame. What shame? Well, he's stripped of all earthly support. Not only do they rip his clothes off and pummel his flesh, every one of his family, every one of his friends abandons him. They're the same guys who said, we'll gladly die with you. They abandon him. Those who asked, could we, or at least got their mother to, could my sons sit on your right and your left when you get into your kingdom? Even those guys abandon him. Think of the shame of that. After all He had done for them. They do to Him exactly what His enemies did. His family is shamed by the crucifixion. His nation is so repulsed with Him, they curse Him and spit on Him and even wag their heads. You look in the Old Testament, every time it talks about people wagging their heads, they're enemies of God. His reputation is gone. It's given way to mockery. His decency is given way to nakedness. His dignity is given way to every form of degradation. His eloquence has become grunts and groans. He despises it all. 
Do you know what he despised more than any of that? He despised the fact that his own father his own father the one with whom he was of one substance his own father a member of the deity turned his back on him Cursed him. How do you endure that? How could he not break down at that moment and call, call that legion of angels? He could have. How come he didn't do that? How, did, how was it possible? To endure the cross is one thing. To despise the shame is another thing. How could he do both things? The writer tells us, for the joy that was set before him. Meaning what? Meaning the way that Jesus overcame both of those obstacles was to refuse to keep his eyes on himself. You know, every year about this time, I mean, it's getting a little late. Every year at this time, I make a doctor's appointment with my eye doctor. And I do it for one reason. I want contacts. I I want new contacts. And I always say to the guy, make them stronger. I want to be able to see that pin, that pin on that green, 260 yards away. I want to be able to see it. I want to be able to see, if I can, the blades of grass on that green. Hundreds of yards away. I want to be able to see it. He said, you won't be able to keep score. Too bad. I'll let somebody else do that. You know, somebody say, sometimes on a golf course, would you read this? I can't. I want to be able to see the distance. I want clarity. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying about our race. He's saying, let us run our race with endurance for the joy of it. How? There's only one way, and that's to get your eyes off yourself. The writer tells us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You can wallow in your pain. You can wallow in your suffering. And you can have compassion for others that are doing that. You can suffer with them. But the answer, the answer whether it's in the first minute or the tenth year, is take your eyes off yourself and put them on to Jesus. You say, wait a minute. If Jesus took His eyes off Himself, who was He looking at? If Jesus took His eyes off Himself and His Father turns His back, who is He looking at? He's looking at you. The joy that was set before Him is you. You. 
Do you see that? He endured the cross and despised the shame for you. You're part of His bride. You're part of the plan. You're part of the prize. You know how I know that? Because what the writer says, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has seated himself on the throne of God. What in the world is Jesus doing there? He's praying for you. No matter whether it's the upper room or Gethsemane or Calvary or the throne, his eyes are never nearsighted. They're always, always fixed on you and on me and all of those whom he knows are his. Jesus is never nearsighted. He's never fixed on himself. He never engages in hyperbolic discounting. His eyes are on you. He sees you completely. He sees everything about you. And you know the good news? He sees you complete. You know, for years I knew that Jesus saw me completely. But more and more I'm learning that He sees me complete. He sees you as a finished product. No wonder He's joyful. He sees you complete through the cross every single day. So what's the writer of Hebrews tell us about our race? Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your pain. Get your eyes off your suffering. Get your eyes off your persecution. Get your eyes off your feelings. And fix your eyes and your gaze on Jesus. You know what you'll discover when you do that? You'll find a joy that is beyond yourself and you'll find a joy that's beyond compare. That's what this table is all about. That's why at the Last Supper Jesus said, This is my body broken. This is my blood shed for you. Because I know exactly what you're going to do when we leave this room. You're going to hightail it away from me. And I know the struggle I'll have. And I know where I will fix my eyes. While you don't see me, I'll see you. Because I see you completely. And I see you complete. That's the joy of this table. You don't come here because you need to clean yourself up. You come here because He's the only one that can. And He has. He wants you to know it. He is our joy. It's His table. He's paid for it. He's set it. And He's inviting you to come.